to the book of Mark. Those of you who are visiting, we've been working our way through this gospel of count of Mark, uh, gospel account written by Mark, but about the life uh, of Jesus. And uh, we are about halfway through our study of this book, uh, finding ourselves this morning in Mark chapter 9. And as I said last week, those of you who are here last week, we have come to a turning point in the book. It's not an immediate turn, but it is slowly turning. All along, Mark has been seeking to show us who this Jesus is, and all along, the disciples have been struggling to see clearly who this Jesus is. And as we talked about last week, sometimes it takes some time to see Jesus clearly, and Jesus illustrated that for his disciples, for us, uh, last week in the miracle that he performed. But the disciples are getting it. Uh, Slowly in stages, Jesus and the picture of who he is is becoming clearer and clearer. And in fact, we are fresh off this confession of Peter uh, on behalf of all the disciples last week where Peter says, you are the Christ. And the bells go off, ding, 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 you've got it, Peter. He is the Christ. But now the question is, what does that mean? What is the role of the Messiah. You see, the mission of the Messiah now is the hard pill to swallow for the disciples. And it's important to just kind of have this background, this framework in our minds as we come to this passage because God the Father knows this about the disciples. God the Father knows this about Jesus' followers. Jesus himself knows this. Which is why, in part, I think this event, a very familiar event to to many of you, if not most of you, occurs at this time in the story, at this time in the account, when his disciples are struggling with having said, yes, he is the Christ. Now, what is that mission? They're struggling with what that mission looks like. And so, uh, that's where we find ourselves this morning, Mark chapter 9 beginning at verse 2 down through verse 13. If you're able, I'd invite you to stand this morning as we read the Scripture, as I read the Scripture together. Um, Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 13, I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. Listen as I read. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. 
So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it was written of him. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. I begin this sermon with a phrase. I notice I begin a lot of sermons with phrases. But this phrase, I'll never look at you the same way again. Have you ever said that phrase to someone close to you? Someone that maybe you were getting to know. I remember saying that phrase to Anna and I racked my brain for a specific instance. But if I did find the instance that I sold her that, she probably wouldn't want me to tell uh, what it is that I noticed. I'll never look at you the same way again. Someone tells you blank and it changes everything. It's a revelation that means things would never be the same. The disciples had been traveling with Jesus for quite some time. They had seen amazing things that none of us in this room had seen. But what three disciples, Peter, James, and John, see here this morning in this event that we just read will move them like no other thing that they have witnessed. And the reason it moves them is because they're about to get this unforgettable glimpse of glory. Raw and real glory. Now in a sense, we all see glory. They had seen glory. Heaven, uh, uh, Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. Glory is all around us. The glory of God is all around us. But glory specifically in reference to the person of God is the manifestation of his being. And the disciples, Peter, James, and John, they had heard about glimpses of God's glory, of his presence. They'd grown up with the stories of the Old Testament. Yahweh would show up at various times, but they had never seen it with their own eyes, and they had never seen it in reference to their beloved friend, Jesus, the one that they had been walking with for all this time. And everything's about to change. And Mark preps us for this change by essentially rolling out the red carpet even before we get to this event. He does this by replacing a normal time marker that he uses immediately. Remember, we've talked about how Mark over and over again uses that word immediately, immediately. But what does he say in Mark chapter 9, verse 2? Not immediately, but after six days. You see, Mark is subtly making a link and one that's incredibly important for the event that's about to come. 
comes from Exodus 24, 16. You don't have to turn there, but just listen. Exodus 24, 16, this is the life of Moses. And it says, the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Six days preceded the revelation of the Lord on Sinai. Six days after Peter confesses the Christ, a new revelation is coming. The glory of Jesus. As we work through this passage together, I want to focus on two truths that I hope will help us take in this scene and also help us apply it to our lives. First, we want to answer the question, what exactly happened here? What's going on? And then we want to answer the question, why did it happen? And so the first truth that I want us to consider this morning is this. The glory of Jesus is the center of our worship. The glory of Jesus is the center of our worship. It's the first thing that this passage ought to do for us, as it did for Peter, James, and John. It ought to both lead us to worship as well as inform our worship. This whole scene declares to these men, to Mark's original readers, to we who read it today, that Jesus is no mere man, that Jesus is God's son, that he is the one to be feared, he is the one to be adored, that everything before this leads up to this point. Let me explain. Let's just talk through the scene. The scene begins with a hike. Jesus takes his three closest friends, Peter, James, and John. He takes them up a mountain. Which mountain? We're not exactly sure, but it doesn't really matter what mountain it is specifically, just the fact that it's a mountain because we know from the rest of Scripture that it's on the mountaintop that God reveals himself, that God meets his people. And so they head up this mountain. When they get to the top, Mark, in a descriptive, but I would say very understated way, explained what happened. One sentence. He, that was Jesus, was transfigured before them. His clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. What's going on there? Well, this word transfigured is an English word where we get our word, uh, the Greek word that this word is translated to, uh, is where we get our English word metamorphosis, right? Meta meaning change, morph meaning form, so a change of form. Jesus is undergoing a change. Jesus is undergoing a transformation. But in regards to Jesus, Jesus is not transforming from something he wasn't into something he is now. Rather, Jesus is giving a glimpse. Jesus is giving a peek of what he already is to the disciples. You see, the disciples had been traveling with this man, and he was an ordinary 
man. I know some of the illustrations that we see, Jesus always has this glow. He always looks like he's washed his clothes that morning, but that's not Jesus. Jesus was an ordinary man. Isaiah spoke of him, that he had no form of majesty that we should look on him, no beauty that we should desire him. Paul would write of him later that Jesus emptied himself, being born, being born in the likeness of man. He was an ordinary human man. But Mark reminds us, Jesus reminds his disciples that underneath, so to speak, not physically, spatially underneath, but underneath this veil of humanity was a brilliance and glory that God's people had only become accustomed to when Yahweh revealed himself. Psalm 104 begins, Bless the Lord of my soul, O Lord, Yahweh, my God, you are very great. You're clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment. And so these men see Jesus standing before them, and he is blindingly white. I was thinking about those uh, photographers and those reflectors that they put up when they're taking pictures outside to give the, the light. And yet Jesus is not reflecting this light. Jesus is emanating this light before his disciples. Well, can you imagine this is enough to, to freak these guys out? And then standing with Jesus are two Jewish heroes that they have heard so much about, and this conversation is anything but random. These men, Elijah and Moses, they prepared the way for the coming of the Messiah. Each of these men had had an experience, a meeting with Yahweh on the mountain. Elijah on Mount Oreb and Moses on Mount Sinai. They both had heard Yahweh's voice and had gotten a glimpse themselves of the glory of the Lord. You see, these men and all that they represented, the law and the prophets and the old covenant. Elijah was the prophet who spoke of the restoration of all things. Moses was the one who received God's law and led God's people out of slavery in Egypt. When Moses came down from meeting with the Lord, his face glowed in the glory that he had seen. And now here is Jesus. Jesus, the greater Moses, doesn't reflect the glory of God, but he shines the glory of God. Jesus, the greater and final prophet of the Lord, comes to usher in the restoration that Elijah could only speak of. You see, Mark is penning all this whole scene. He's not creating it. He's describing it. Peter's describing it to Mark who's recording it. But do you see the richness for the, these Jews as they're standing there seeing their Savior, seeing their companion? as these men who represent the law and the prophets and the old covenant stand with him, things should be clicking. This is the promised one. This is the center of worship. This is the one whom the Father declares from heaven, is my son, listen to him. 
See, it all leads here. Everything funnels to Jesus. We've talked about this before, but this is, this is the richness of the grand story that Jesus, or that God the Father has been writing throughout, of, throughout the Scripture. All of the Old Testament leads to Jesus. All of the Old Testament points to Jesus. Therefore, when we take the Bible in our hands, the Bible is not primarily for us a manual for life. The Bible is not primarily for us how-tos. But the Bible is, look at my son. You need to see Jesus. And certainly ethical demands flow from seeing Jesus. Certainly Jesus himself gives ethical demands, but the glory of Jesus is the center of our worship. The glory of Jesus is the center of the scriptures. It's a scene, as the disciples take this all in, it's a scene that that overwhelms them. They're struggling to know what to say. Jesus, their very ordinary friend, who did extraordinary things, is now glowing in burning, white, hot holiness. But they needed this. They needed to see Jesus like this. We need to see Jesus like this. Jesus is not soft, nor is Jesus particularly hard, but Jesus is glorious. And that's not to make Jesus far off. No, Jesus is a friend that sticks closer than a brother, but he is glorious. The other thing to think about is Peter, James, and John stand before the glory of God in the face of Jesus is they should have died. They should have died. When Moses asked to see the glory of Jesus, the Lord had to tuck him in a rock because if he saw saw the glory full on, he would die. And yet here they are standing before Jesus. Hebrews 12, 18 through 24, for you have not come to what may be touched, the writer to the Hebrews says, a blazing fire, gloom and a tempest, the sound of a trumpet, a voice whose words made the hearers beg that messages might not be spoken to them. That's Mount Sinai, but you've come to Mount Zion, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You see, Jesus is not only the center of our worship, the blazing hot glory of God, but he's also the entrance to that worship. And so Peter tries to fill this fearful air with something, right? We've come to know Peter as the guy who's not afraid to say something. And so Peter says, it is good that we're here. One commentator suggested that maybe his comment is a question. Is it good that we're here? Which is kind of interesting to think about. And then he goes on and and fumbles further and says, shall we set up some tents? We don't know exactly what Peter means by this. Perhaps Peter wants to prolong the experience. Perhaps he thinks that this is the end. 
This is where it's all pointing. This is the glory that they were all waiting for. Let's just chill. Let's just set up shop. Let's just bypass that suffering, Jesus, that you were talking about and just usher right in. That's probably what Peter was thinking. But Jesus knows that they must come down off of the mountain. He knows his sheep. He knows that they need to know him as he really is, as he truly is, as they are about to walk the road ahead. And that brings us to the second truth that I want to see this morning. It's this. The glory of Jesus is the cornerstone of our journey. Not just the glory of Jesus is the centerpiece of our worship, but the glory of Jesus is the cornerstone of our journey. We need it not just for worship, not just to see him rightly, but we need it to live. We need it for life. And of course, I'm using a term here that Paul uses when he speaks to the church at Ephesus and he talks about Jesus being the the cornerstone, the chief stone, the primary crucial stone in a foundation being built. Isaiah spoke of the same thing in Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16. He says, behold, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone. Whoever believes will not be in haste. And that last phrase, whoever believes will not be in haste. There's another very loose translation that Eugene Peterson gives that I like on that last phrase of Isaiah that says, a trusting life won't topple. That's what the revelation of a cornerstone means. A trusting life won't topple. You see, this is where this event, beyond gaining an accurate vision of who Jesus is, he is the Christ, he is the Son of God, he is the glorious one. This is where that vision and all of that conclusion, where the rubber now meets the road for these men and for us. I mean, you notice this is not a public event. Jesus took Three guys, three crucial guys that he would build his church upon. And the reason he did this was first to steal them for the road ahead. Steal, S-T-E-E-L, for the road ahead. Three things I want us to consider when we think about Jesus being the cornerstone of our journey. And these are three things I want us to wrestle with as we meet this week in small groups and and think about the glory of Jesus and its impact upon our lives. First of all, the glory of Jesus gives us strength for suffering. The glory of Jesus gives us strength for suffering. Jesus had spoke to these men. He had just spoke to these men about the inevitability of a cross that they're going to have to pick up as a result of following him. Jesus was dying to self every day and literally would die. Jesus is calling his followers to do the same thing, to literally die to themselves each day. This vision, this taste, this little bit of glory that they get here 
is designed to help them carry through what they're about to face. These guys don't forget about it. They could not forget about it. John would start off his account of Jesus' life with these words in John chapter 1, and the Word became flesh, and we have seen His glory. I've seen it. Listen to me. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then there's Peter. Peter, of course, is the one giving this account to Mark in Mark chapter 9, but Peter himself would write to the church in 2 Peter 1 to a church that was suffering. Peter would write this, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he, when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain." See, Peter can't get this out of his mind either. This has steeled them for a road of suffering that lies ahead. The glory of Jesus is strength in the face of suffering. That's the first, I think, application for us, but there's more. There's more than what we just find in common with these men, but there's something that Paul tips us off to. The glory of Jesus is also hope for change. The glory of Jesus is also hope for change. What I mean by that is that the glory of Jesus gives us power to be like Jesus. To put off and to put on. You and I, we will never be gods. We ought not want to be gods, but we ought to want to shine. We ought to want to reflect the brilliance that the disciples witnessed. Proverbs 4.18 says this should happen, but the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. And brothers and sisters, that glory of Jesus has been given to us in His Spirit. The Spirit that resides here, that resides in each of us. And that's why Paul uses the very same term that Mark uses here. Paul uses when he writes to the church at Corinth and Rome to talk about our growth in grace, to talk about our sanctification. 2 Corinthians 3. In fact, let's, let's turn there. If you have your Bibles, turn there with me for a moment. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. I'm going to read a, a lengthy passage. Um, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, starting at verse 7. If you have Bibles, follow along. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of his glory. See here, Paul is referring to this Old Testament event that is being fulfilled, that is being uh, pointed back to in the transfiguration which was brought to an end, verse 8, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. 
For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened. For to this day when they read the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ it is taken away. Verse 16, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. There it is. There's the word. Into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. See, the glory of Jesus is our hope for change. And the glory of Jesus is ours in part by the Spirit. Romans 12, 2 says the same thing, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, be changed by the renewal of your mind. Well, lastly, the glory of Jesus gives us a future. Right? The glory of Jesus is the cornerstone of our journey. It's strength for suffering, it's hope for change, but ultimately the glory of Jesus assures us, guarantees us that we have a future. And it helps us long for that future more. Revelation 1, 16 In his right hand he held seven stars, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. The glory of God, the brilliance of God in Jesus will return. And the Lord, Jesus, eagerly awaits to usher us into that glory. For Jesus prayed in John 17, 24, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. The glory of Jesus, the centerpiece of our worship, the cornerstone of our journey. We need to be pursuing it. But how do you pursue the glory of Jesus? Well, you're not going to any mountaintops. We don't live in the mountaintops. No, we go find the glory of Jesus in the way that he has revealed himself to us. In the beauty of creation, the beauty of his word, in the beauty of the household of faith and the fellowship of the saints, in the, in the signs that he has designed to communicate his grace and his glory to us, to nourish us along this journey until full glory will be displayed. Oh, may we long for that day. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the glory of Jesus shown in such a visible, incredible way to your servant Peter, James, and John. 
Thank you for this account preserved over many generations, which again reminds us of of who you are, of what that means, of what you will soon do to put the world to rights. Come, Lord Jesus. Come quickly that we might see your glory on full display. But until that day, Father, give us glimpses. Give us tastes. All along this journey, as we long for more, as we seek to walk in faithfulness, to the God who has made us, the God who has saved us, the God who loves us. Oh, Holy Spirit, take these words and press them upon our hearts for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.